Amen to that. just want to echo Steve's words, really, that, about how um, wonderful it is to have the, the, the worship team lead us this morning. Um, I've been so encouraged through the worship this morning. Um, and essentially, the song we've just sang, day after day, night after night, I will remember you're with me in this fight. Although the battle, it rages on, the war is already won. That's essentially my sermon. So, thanks guys. <laughs> I suppose I better do something to earn my paycheck. But it's, it's just so encouraging, isn't it? to hear those words and to be reminded that the war is already won. Although it's tough at times, although it's hard, we prayed earlier in the service, didn't we, for those that are, are perhaps just finding it a struggle at the moment, that are just need to remember that, that God has won the victory. We need to hold on to that truth. And that's kind of where I want to end this morning. So if you can forget that, we'll go back to the start, as it were. Are you ready for some more tough talk? Yeah. <laughs> Are you ready for some more tough talk? Yes. <laughs> are you up for a challenge this morning? Um, no. <laughs> yes, of course we are. If you're away last week, we're just getting going on this brand new series of teaching um, where we're taking a look at some of the hard sayings um, of Jesus. Some of the stuff that Jesus said in the Gospels, um, which causes us to pull this face. Perhaps if I turn it on. This face. This face. Is the, thi is the thing in? There we go. Well, that was worth it, wasn't it? <laughs> Maybe not. Well, I'm sure we've all pulled that face from time to time um, as we've read through the Gospels. Some of the sayings are hard because they're tricky to understand. You know, the Bible was written a long time ago, after all. Um, some of the sayings are hard because they just don't seem like the sorts of things that Jesus would say. You know, there's bits of the Bible that we read and we think, did he really just say that? Did I read that right? All of them, however, are hard because they present us with um, a challenge. Those of us who follow Jesus, they challenge our faith. They give us a way in which Jesus wants us to respond in our lives, something that he wants us to do as a result. So, for example, last week we spent some time looking at Jesus' words in John chapter 6. This is where Jesus stood in front of a crowd of people and said, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Huh? Did he really just say that? What does he mean? Eat the flesh of the Son of Man. It's bizarre, isn't it? But as we dug a little bit deeper, we discovered that the crowd that Jesus was talking to was in fact the same crowd that had the previous day witnessed Jesus perform the feeding of the 5,000. That they had sought him out because they were hungry again and they wanted him to miraculously produce more bread for them to eat. And Jesus told them that he wanted to give them something better. He said if they could look beyond their physical desires and, and put their trust in him, then they would discover spiritual satisfaction. He said the bread you need is not that bread we had yesterday, but it's me. I am the bread of life. You need to take me on board in your lives. But they wouldn't hear him, would they? They only wanted what they thought they needed, and so they walked away. And Jesus knew their hearts weren't in it, and so he turned to his own followers, his closest disciples, and said, what about you? 
Where do you stand with all this? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Peter was committed. He was committed to Jesus no matter the cost. And that's really um, where I want to pick up the thread from this morning. I want to spend some time thinking about the cost of following Jesus in our lives because Jesus did much and he said much to prepare his followers for the reality of living for him. And not all of it was positive. Matthew 5, for example, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of things against you because of me. That's not normally what we mean when we say have a blessed week, is it? Or John 15, Jesus says, Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. That doesn't sound too fantastic, does it? You see, I think maybe one of the problems that we have is that we sometimes treat Jesus like he's a self-help book. A product that we can consume and, and then suddenly, as if by magic, all of our problems vanish. Take one dose of Jesus twice a day for six weeks and see the difference for yourself. But you know, the problem with viewing Jesus this way is that he never actually promises that our lives here on earth will become easier when we start to follow him. In fact, in these verses that we've read, he indicates the exact opposite. He warns us of choppy waters ahead, of difficulties that can and often do result as a, 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 because we choose to live our lives for him. And the passage I want to spend some time looking at this morning is a prime example of this. And, both, and like last week, it's both tricky to understand and a challenge to the way that we live our lives. So, let's dive in, shall we? Deep breaths, everyone. The hard saying this time is found in both Matthew and Luke's Gospel. And we'll read it in both to begin with this morning. Um, we're going to probably spend most of our time this morning in Matthew um, chapter 10, though, if you've got your own Bibles with you. Um, that's where we'll be for most of the morning, and I'll put the rest of the words up on screen. So Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 to 36, Jesus says this, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. And then Luke records Jesus saying almost the same thing in chapter 12 of his gospel, verses 51 to 53. He says, do you think I have come to bring peace on the earth? No. I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That's tough to hear. That's tough to understand. You know, especially that bit about, about mother-in-laws, because I have such a wonderful, <laughs> truly amazing mother-in-law. Simply the best. And you know, I'm not just saying that because she's sitting in the front row here. <laughs> it's from the heart, 100%. Can I have some Welsh cakes now, please? <laughs> but you know, all joking aside, what does Jesus mean when he says he comes to bring the sword in Matthew and division in Luke? 
We're just coming off the back of Christmas, as Fiona reminds us this morning, and we have fresh in our minds the heavenly hosts singing peace on earth and goodwill to all mankind. And suddenly we're faced with Jesus saying, I didn't come to bring peace on earth. Is he right? Have we missed something here in our reading? Does Jesus not want us as his followers to be peacemakers in the world? I think he does. I think one of the reasons this passage seems so jarring and so unsettling is because at first glance it seems so out of character for Jesus. Of course, we do need care. We need to be sure that we're not simply creating the Jesus we want rather than getting to know the real deal. He was a complex character after all. He both asked the little children to come to him and then made a whip and chased people out of the temple. You know, he's hardly the blue sash-wearing, long-haired hippie we sometimes see in portraiture. Jesus was someone to be revered, and still is. But was he a peacemaker? Well, he certainly encouraged his disciples to be. He taught them not to retaliate, not to resist when they were mistreated. In Matthew um, chapter 5, he says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let them take your coat as well. Certainly sounds like conflict avoidance to me. He also says in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called children of God. That means that when we actively pursue peace, we demonstrate something of the nature of God in our lives. You know, if Jesus was God's son, then surely he was all about making peace on the earth. And I think he was. I think we see it in his life and his ministry. He brought people together that never should have been together. Think about Matthew, who was a a tax collector for Rome. Spending time with Simon the Zealot, who wanted nothing more than to do away with Rome and its rule. Jesus brought them together. I imagine there were some awkward silences during those first few weeks around the dinner table. But he did it. They became best of friends. We're told in Luke that as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem for the last time, he sees the city and it causes him to weep out loud and say, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but it's now hidden from your eyes. Their inability to recognize the one who can bring them peace causes Jesus' heart to break. I think Jesus is still heartbroken at the the lack of peace that exists in our world and our lives. Later in Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul talks about the armour of God and he says your feet should be fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. The good news about peace. And in his second letter to the Corinthians, he tells us Jesus has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are the ones that take the message of peace out into the world. So why then does Jesus say these words? Why is he telling us he's come to bring the sword and division to break families apart? What is this all about? Well, first off, we need to understand the context. As you know, it's never advisable to pick Bible verses out the middle of chapters without doing some reading either side and trying to understand a little better what's going on. So what is the context to these verses? Well, firstly, in both Luke and Matthew, Jesus is talking to his disciples. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, he's talking to you. Specifically, he's talking to them about how they are to handle themselves in his absence. How they are to handle themselves in the real world. What does it look like when we're not sitting at Jesus' feet and learning from him? 
In Luke, the saying comes on the back of a parable about being watchful for Jesus' return. And in Matthew, it comes as Jesus instructs his disciples as he's about to send them out on mission for the first time. So two separate occasions, but both times Jesus is trying to teach them of something of what they should expect out there in the world. I'm going to focus, as I said already, on Matthew's account this morning. You can do, you can do Luke for your homework, otherwise you might be here all morning. So Matthew 10, as I've said already, Jesus' hard saying here comes part of a discourse that he's having with his followers about um, a task he wants them to complete in the world. He's sending them out into the world. Verse 2, Matthew 10, he refers to them as apostles for the first time. It just means sent one, one who is sent. So what's the mission? What are they being sent to do? Well, we read in verse 6, they're being sent to the lost sheep of Israel, people of their own heritage, fellow Jewish people. And as they go, Jesus wants them to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And then he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, and drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. In other words, Everything you've seen from me, everything you've seen me do, everything that we've done together, everything you've experienced in my presence, I now want you to take all of that and take it into the world. On this occasion, he tells them to go to the lost sheep of Israel, but we know later on Jesus tells them, and indeed us, his followers, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Take this good news, take this new life with you out into the world and show them what it looks like. This is Jesus' mission for us. Being a follower of Jesus isn't just about hearing from him and receiving from him. It's about taking what he has given us and giving it away. Freely you've received, freely give. And the way we do that is the same way that Jesus was instructing his disciples to do it here in Matthew. Through proclamation and demonstration. Proclamation and demonstration. Firstly, we proclaim that Jesus is alive. That he has brought about God's kingdom on earth. That he loves us. That he has demonstrated that love to us on the cross. And that in him we have found salvation. Can I get an amen? Now, you might want to use those exact words. If you run out of here this morning shouting, Jesus is alive, his kingdom is here, people are probably going to give you a wide berth. I'm not trying to discourage you if that's your particular evangelistic tactic, but I don't think that Jesus is advocating that here. In verse 11, he speaks of finding someone that you can stay with, looking for those people that will listen to what you have to say. Jesus wanted his followers to evangelize in communities, but the key thing is finding a way to say it. Finding a way to proclaim it. Standing up for Jesus, not just on a Sunday morning when we're invited to stand, but out there in the world, in that big, scary place beyond the doors. Jesus wants us to be looking for opportunities to share him with those who will listen. How was your weekend? You know what? It was great. I got to spend some time in church. Sermon was a bit rubbish, but you know, I really felt God's presence tough week huh yeah you know it's been hard but you know I've been praying I've been praying loads and God's really been helping me through it what are you up to later I'll probably watch a bit of Netflix and uh, read my Bible actually I've been really challenged recently 
by this, this section of Scripture here. You know, when we talk this way, when we include Jesus in our conversations, we bring honour to Jesus. We take him out into the world with us. We don't leave him here for next week when we can pick him up again. I really like the way Peter suggests that we do this. In his first letter, he says this, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Keep him in that place of honour through the week in your life. Keep him there. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. Do this with gentleness and respect. I think that's great. How about you? How do you do it? How do you get through the week? What do you drink to survive? Actually, you know what? For me, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one that makes the difference in my life. And when we revere someone, when we're devoted to them, we want to honour them amongst all others. We want to lift them high so that the world can see. The way Jesus puts it here in Matthew is a lot stronger. In verse 32, he says, Whoever acknowledges me before others... I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. I don't want that to send you spiralling out of control. I don't want you thinking that Jesus is going to pretend he doesn't know you because you didn't tell that girl in Starbucks you were a Christian that one time she asked. Remember for a moment that Jesus' disciples, his own followers, abandoned him at the cross. And Peter, arguably Jesus' closest follower, denied even knowing him three times, yet Jesus didn't come back and tell them to get lost because they hadn't been brave enough. He knew they wouldn't be. That's why he gave them the Holy Spirit to help them. Jesus understands that this is a challenge for us. This is not an easy task. That's why he promises to be with us. He says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. But if we're going to live our lives with our hearts and our mouths firmly closed to Jesus, we'll never know the truth of that. And so we need to look for those opportunities to proudly proclaim Jesus to the world. And then secondly, we need to look for opportunities to demonstrate our faith as well, both practically and spiritually. You know, practically we might look for those ways to help the least, the lost and the lonely, to to serve those in need in our town and community. And as a church, I think we're really good at this one. You know, we have the manor house and food bank and night shelter and so on. I'm not saying there's not more that we can do, but there, there is opportunity to get involved. But what about helping spirit, people spiritually? How do we go about that? What about offering to pray for those people that we know are sick? Jesus said to his followers, go and heal the sick. Go and heal them. That's very matter of fact, isn't it? Heal them. Show them how much I care about them. Make them well again. I wonder how often we put our faith in the line this way. I suppose... It's easier with our Christian brothers and sisters because at least if it doesn't work, they'll forgive us, I hope. What about those who don't know Jesus is alive and can heal them today? What about those people? Jesus sends us out into the world on a mission. He doesn't say invite them to a healing service. He says go, go and find them. I guess the worst that can happen is that they don't get healed, but at least they know that someone cares enough to bring them before God. What's the best that can happen? What about praying that God would give you a word for someone and then being bold enough to share it with them? Look, I've been praying for you this week. And I think God wants you to know. He loves you. He cares about what you're going through. He died for you, whatever it might be. Making you nervous now, aren't I? How do you think Jesus' disciples felt when he said, go and raise the dead and drive out demons? (laughs) Eek. 
But the thing is this, you know, Jesus has high expectations of what he can achieve through us when we are prepared to step out in faith. I really believe that. I know Steve is fond of the William Carey quote, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And that's the life that Jesus calls us to. If I can borrow a term from Paul, we are Christ's ambassadors to the world, witnesses to his goodness and his grace in our own lives. Pope Francis says to be an ambassador for Christ means that we invite everyone to a personal encounter with Jesus. How will that come about if we don't demonstrate what it looks like to be in a relationship with him to the rest of the world? Freely have you received, Jesus said. Freely you've received. You've seen me at work in your own life. You know how much I love you. You know what I've done for you. Now go and give it away. But you know, at the same time Jesus tells us what he requires from us, he also warns us that this life will not be an easy one. In this passage in Matthew, in verse 16, he tells his followers they will be like sheep amongst wolves. What a visceral picture that is. He tells his followers they will be handed over to councils and flogged in synagogues, that they will be brought before governors and kings. And in verse 21 we read, Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. But, he adds, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Very similar words to the words he eventually uses in verse 34, which we started with. Why should it be so hard trying to teach the world of Jesus' love? Why should we receive such persecution? What is that about? Well, very simply, I think this is the result of a world that has rejected Jesus. And for some of us, this means our family as well. A few of us are blessed enough to come from families where Jesus is honoured by every member, but I guess that most do not. In some cases, it might be that our families are simply indifferent to Christ, uninterested, but in other cases, because of their own life experiences, they may have stronger feelings. They may perhaps even be hostile towards Jesus or even the idea of God. And as a result, they may resent others' commitment to the church and God's plans and purposes for the world. They may see pursuing Jesus as a waste of time. Time that can be better spent doing other things. They may be confused as to why Christians spend so much of their money and their resources furthering God's mission when that money could be better spent at home. And this can lead to some challenging conversations. For some people it might mean we have to put up with complaining and niggling and misunderstanding from family members. For others it's far more serious. For example, I know those from a strict Muslim background. Becoming a follower of Jesus can mean that you're kicked out of the family for good. As Jesus declares in Luke, following him can lead to division in the family. For those of us in that situation, we may even begin to question whether we're making the right decision in committing our lives to him. The cost can seem too high. And the thing is this, you know, Jesus knew that that would be the case. He knew that would be one of the outcomes of of the life that he was calling his followers to. Actually, he knew it firsthand. His family were not exactly accepting of the way that he chose to live his life either. In Mark 3, his family hear about how he would rather speak to a crowd of people about the kingdom of God than have his lunch. And it says in verse 21, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. He's lost it. He's gone crazy. Who skips lunch for the gospel? 
In John 7, his brothers gang up on him and they tease him about wanting to become a public figure. They goad him into showing off at an upcoming festival where people were trying to kill him. It says in verse 4, even his own brothers did not believe in him. Not yet anyway. If you're in that situation where there is conflict and there is division at home because of your faith, be encouraged that you are in good company. Jesus is right there with you. He knows what that is like and he wants you to hold on to him. You see, when Jesus declares in verse 34, I did not come to bring peace but the sword, it was not because it was his intention to drive families apart. Far from it. Jesus knew his scripture. He was committed to the Ten Commandments, the fifth being honour your mother and father. As far as possible, he wants families to live in peace with each other, but he understood that division and conflict would come as a result of his followers living in a world that has rejected him. It's really interesting what he goes on to say. You know, he says, I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. A man's enemies were members of his own household. He isn't actually using his own words. Is using his father's words that were given to the prophet Micah 700 years previously and delivered to the nation of Israel who he's now sending his disciples to. You can look it up in the Old Testament. Micah chapter 7 verse 6. And I think Jesus uses this passage quite deliberately. I think he wants to remind his followers of this prophecy. Not just the words he quotes but all of it. I think he wants them to recall the words. And I think there are three reasons for that. And I really hope there'll be an encouragement to you this morning as you think about Jesus calling on your life. Firstly, just like Jesus was doing here, Micah, towards the end of his book, paints a picture of what life looks like in a world devoid of God. For the Israelites, that was a picture of exile. Listen to what he writes earlier on in chapter 7. He says, The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. Ancient words that I think sound alarmingly fresh today. Corruption and lies and selfish agendas sought at the expense of others sounds very much to me like the world that we live in. The world that Jesus sends us to, a sheep amongst wolves. Jesus wanted his followers to be under no illusions about what it was that they were up against. He wanted them to understand that this was going to be tough. This was going to be a challenge. That's why he says, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. Watch out for those that would do harm. He doesn't send us out recklessly. He warns of the dangers that lie ahead so that we might be prepared. The second reason I think he wants to remind us of Micah's prophecy is that it warns them to hold on to him even when things are at their bleakest. Micah writes in verse 7 of chapter 7, But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for my God, my Saviour. My God will hear me. My God will hear me. Remember those words of Jesus in verse 22 of Matthew You'll be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Stick with me and you will be okay. There's hope here. Even when we're facing attacks from all sides, even when it feels like the world's against us, even when those attacks might come from our own home and our own families, Jesus says, stay with me, stick with me, and you will be okay. 
And thirdly, and this is really where I want to come to this morning, where I want to finish, I think Jesus reminds them of Micah's prophecy because in the end, in the end of Micah's prophecy, God has the ultimate victory. He writes in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 7, Nations will see and be ashamed. Deprived of all their power, they will put their hands over their mouths and their ears will become death. They will lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. They will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you. Compare that to Jesus' words in Matthew 10 verse 26. So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. And he goes on to add, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs on your head are numbered. So do not be afraid. You are worth more. You are worth more than many sparrows. God knows you. God loves you. And Jesus has won the ultimate victory on your behalf. Being an ambassador for Jesus in this world is hard. There is no doubt about it. But Jesus assures us that ultimately it is worth it. That those who do evil in this world, those who set out to cause harm, will ultimately come to ruin. And even though at times it might feel like we're on the losing side, like this life that Jesus offers is not worth pursuing, it's simply not true. That's why I think Jesus writes in verse 39, Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. He doesn't want us to settle for second best in our lives, to miss out on all that he has for us. Jesus knows what awaits us beyond this life. He knows that the victory is his. He knows what's in store for those who stand firm in him. And so he calls us to follow him first and foremost, even when the odds are stacked against us. Whether out in the world, sharing his love, talking of the differences made in our lives, putting our faith on the line or standing in front of our families and saying, you know what, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow the calling he's placed on my life, knowing that perhaps they simply will not understand that decision. We can be assured that Jesus is right there with us. That the sacrifice that we make in that moment is nothing compared to what he has for us in the future. I wonder if the band would come and join me. It's not an easy life that Jesus calls us to, but it is worthwhile. You know, at the very start of this chapter, Jesus says, it says he calls the twelve to him, and it says he gives them authority. And at the end of Matthew's Gospel, before he sends them into the world, he reminds them of this. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We don't go in our own strength and our own wisdom, but we go in His, in His authority. And we have nothing to fear from the world. Our suffering or persecution, anything that we may face now, will quickly pale into insignificance when we come face to face with our Saviour. As Paul puts it, our light and our momentary troubles 
are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we go. We proclaim His goodness. We demonstrate His love to a world that is desperate, a world that is broken in the confident assurance that Jesus is by our side. I wonder if you'd stand with me.